We are back. It's been a little over a week. A little over a week. Not much has changed, I don't think, in the world of myofascial decompression, bony thumbs, and bony elbows. Um, not not from that perspective, but there has been a lot of conversation around what is happening with the massage therapy profession. Oh my goodness. Oh really? really? What's that? What's the word? Um. So our professional associations have all have urged us to follow our governor's executive orders. For example, mm-hmm. I have found out recently that there are still massage therapists practicing. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, wow. I've also I've also heard that if you're a therapist who works in a medical type facility, that is allowed. Okay. Interesting. Uh, it, it it is interesting because I your work should should be the same. Basically, you can't work yeah. from six feet apart, <laughs> whether you're in a medical facility or a <laughs> type of environment. Um, and then I've been talking and emailing, texting, just communicating with a peer of mine who is trying, who's on a task force with the Virginia governor, Virginia. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out when, when is it safe? What happens? What would be the new guidelines that massage therapists would have to follow when we return? And, um, she's saying it's ideally for everybody's safety. It would be later on in the summer like July or August type thing. Wow. So they don't feel like face masks and gloves are enough to protect you and your client. Well, it's interesting. I listened to one of she ha- she has a podcast as well, um, and she had a researcher on there who uh, works in a med school. She teaches a class in um, in a medical school in South Carolina, and they were like, "I massage therapists, you should be washing before your clients, washing your hands after your clients." And wiping down, like changing your linens. So that's right. just, but how many times they're saying, how many times do you, if some of those, some therapists use a pump bottle, how many times are you touching the pump bottle? And so just like people oh, are like in between and yeah, oh, okay. and you'd have to wipe that down. Plus you, all your surfaces, plus, um, how many times do you, would you touch your face mask? You might touch it 80 times and then you would need to change it. So there's all these, and then if your client's wearing a face mask, and then it's looking like we might have to use gloves as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. All kinds of um, interesting considerations. So there's a lot of ethical issues, a lot of moral dilemma that's happening around mm-hmm. people who are practicing. And um, this woman is doing a uh, study, which sounds very interesting. They She wants all health professionals, massage therapists, nurses, doctors, allied health, to send in like video recordings of themselves talking because she wants to see facial expressions um, about how they feel about not being able to work or how do they feel about having to be the people on the front lines and then what happens over time in the professions do people start to leave do how long do they last how long will this last oh that's interesting yeah there's got to be a pretty intense psychological component to having to deal with a one-on-one environment where you're touching someone and all the concerns, there's gotta, there's, yeah, I can, I can see that stressing out people. And over time you can probably hear it in their voice and you could hear it. You could see it in their yeah. face. That, that's pretty interesting actually. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you said about touching the face masks and like touching the pump bottle, because I've been, I would never have thought of that. And I've been thinking about um, what would happen if, um, Northern Virginia opens up for their swimming league over the summer for their summer swim league. Um, and like people keep being like, well, you can social distance this way and this way. And I'm like, what about how each lane needs, um, three timers and there are six lanes in a pool. And then you have all the kids who are usually waiting to get like, it's what they call clerk of course. So you're waiting for your race and you're all usually lined up on these picnic benches. Like, I don't know how, like, the more I think about it are all these little things that I never really realized in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And how do you have a practice? I mean, it's like 60 kids of practice. Yeah. I, I mean, what are they going to do? Have a meet with, like, three kids in 
because uh, he, he is usually six or eight kids and they go bam, bam, bam. And I'm like, well, if you're distancing, A, where are the lines of kids going around the neighborhoods? And then like, who, who's, <laughs> what? <laughs> Like outside the outside of the Trader Joe's store down in on Alexandria, like line yeah. is out around the parking lot, out like right, and then they everybody's six feet apart and mm-hmm. the masks and yeah. Wegmans had a line yesterday, and I was like, Wegmans, I love you, but I was not prepared for this. <laughs> like that's why I haven't been going to Trader Joe's because I have no idea. You never know how long you're gonna wait. Like don't get me wrong, you're doing a great job. I love you, but I don't have one to six hours. Well, I could. <laughs> when people aren't calling you and interrupting your baking skills. So rude. So That's rude. I just rude. wanted to make coffee cake this morning. Uh, oh. So I can't recall, but were, were you going to make content to show people how to foam roll properly or something to that effect? Yes. And I mm-hmm. can't even tell you the people who have listened to the podcast thus far have texted me and said, oh, I might be foam rolling incorrectly. And I'm like, yeah, you probably are. So, uh, <laughs> you mean you definitely are. <laughs> I was talking so, specifically about you when I said no one knew how to foam roll. <laughs> I was thinking of your face. No. Um, so I actually am now <laughs> this morning, I was watching a YouTube video on how to make a YouTube video. <laughs> well, very meta. Love. Um, and trying to figure out, you know, I could just take a, I could take a video of myself doing a foam roll, but then if a file's too big, it's so funky how Gmail allows you or, or email allows you to send it or not send it and text mm-hmm. blah. So it was recommended to me. Maybe you should just put it on a YouTube video and then just send people links mm-hmm. and then you can just add content, right? Like you would know about that. You so then it. of course I'm like, well, what's the difference between a YouTube channel and a YouTube video? Well, you have to have a channel first. There you go. See, now I need a channel to upload my YouTube videos. I got you. I'll yeah. make you a channel. Think of a channel as like an account. That's all it is. Yeah. And okay. I'm I'm happy to help where I can. And so if you took video, I'm happy to edit it together for you too. So if you wanted to get different angles you and you only have one camera per se you would film from one angle do the same exercise from a different angle i would be happy to edit that together for you it's not oh, hard so you guys because man I, I was like should i download this splicing editing thing or send it to I, me i should download this thumbnail they want they're telling me how i need really good thumbnails to put up to make people more interested and how i need to have people to click things i'm like i just need a space to collect my content so i can send it out all the um coaches and trainers are like please put a few things up there our athletes are dying so this is actually what i have learned between doing my online sessions and then kind of creating all these online myofascial release trigger point pieces is there is a difference between getting content out there for athletes, mm-hmm. and getting content, uh, meaningful things that will work for clients who are not necessarily athletic and are trying to work through some kind of an injury. Oh, totally. That's so, we, yeah. Our, our, if you look at our videos, like we have, we started with technique and like, this is what you want to do when you know what you're doing and all of that stuff. And then we, we were like, oh, what about all the people who don't even know? how to do anything which is the more yeah the higher percentage so yeah i'm with you yeah i actually had a client who um was referred because they were having trouble and i realized within a few minutes that all the wonderful ideas i had created to help release this myofascially was going to have to be adapted because um they could not sit on the floor well oh wow really have somebody on the floor because all my content is related to foam rolling on the floor, tennis balls, yoga blocks. Uh, mm-hmm. Think about that. I don't, I don't even have a way to have someone sit in a chair, although I, it's easy to, to do that. But anyway, it was just kind of a reminder to me that when I do that kind of content, like you said, there's, I have to be very specific mm-hmm. yeah. for athletes. The quad release I've created with a tennis ball and a yoga block when you're planking that's for athletes. <laughs> 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 I already know that stuff. 
I'm not going to put someone in there who has an injury or knee injury or you can't bet. That's to- that's going to have to be different content. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah, so. But I also want to just like point out, uh, I think at least when we first started doing videos on YouTube, I was like, oh my God, it has to have this and this and it has to have an intro and music and all of this stuff. And I have to make sure it's edited like really, really well and all of that. And yes, there are like a ton of YouTube channels like that where they spend, that's that's their main focus, like the YouTube channel and making their videos and all of that. That's how they make their And money. they look way better than our videos. And I just was like, we at one point, we're like, this isn't how we make our money. Like, we're just doing this to facilitate what we do and add on and be helpful. So, like, if it's just me talking at a camera for a minute and 42 seconds and, like, there's dogs in the background and shit, sorry. <laughs> that's my YouTube channel. <laughs> like, that's whatever I feel like. So, I mean, yeah. I think there are definitely levels. And you're not you're not trying to start a channel w- to, like, make money. I would so. also... To, to elaborate, I was talking to one of our clients about YouTube videos in general. Mm-hmm. And I th- I think it's important for people to understand if someone produces a very good YouTube video, it's probably because they're not in the field working doing these things. They're good at producing video. Or they hire a videographer, which a lot of people do. Right. So if... If you are judging a clinician by their ability to film a video and create content, then you're probably missing the, the mark. That clinician is supposed to be spending time being better at being a clinician, not being better at editing and creating videos. So if a video is too good, I question who created it. You know what I mean? It's like, wait a second. What I'm hoping for is that as is my five-year-old watches a lot of unboxing videos on YouTube. So I'm hoping <laughs> all I have to do is sit her in front of the YouTube video on how to make YouTube videos. And she'll be like, oh yeah, mama, I know what to do. I can splice this for you in five seconds flat. It's just like, a box it. <laughs> like yes, I can make my five-year-old work for me for free. <laughs> you just made me slightly consider having a human child. <laughs> still still not doing it, but like that's a good call. That would be useful because Evie can't she doesn't have thumbs. It's adorable. Your dog <laughs> is adorable. Uh but yeah. Mm-mm. Um, so Lisa, you wanted to talk about what? I know what Kim wants to talk about. All right, we can <laughs> have a brief, brief discussion about if we actually do prefer sandwiches over Can I can I put a just really quick before we talk about sandwiches? Yeah. You want to talk Can, about something no, no, real? I just want to ask or say I would like to include any content links that you create, Kim, in this podcast. So, mm-hmm. if, <laughs> so hurry up and get that done already. <laughs> so get it done. So when we release this podcast, people can go, oh, let me see how to foam roll properly. And if yeah. you don't have them ready, I'll just find a video of a tasty recipe being made because who doesn't like to watch those? And if you want to just make content about making sandwiches, we can put that out as well. <laughs> um, yes, you know, I feel like I should be able to do a very three, you know, three minute foam rolling how to, mm-hmm. what you should look for, what you should feel in your body, what you should not be doing um, Would, within a week. I feel like that's do- totally doable. You I got mean, it. I would think so. Would it make sense to do it by body part or area? Like, this is how you're going to foam roll oh, X. Yes. That way you I'm don't have just, to cover all the bases. Oh, I'm just thinking of the, the usual, let's just roll out your back to get yourself warmed up for what we're going to move into. That's mm-hmm. the piece I've been a little bit horrified about. Yeah, that, that one's definitely easy. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to do it by body part for sure. Like, I was just practicing trying to figure out how to t- how to video the quad piece and how they say you're supposed to only film yourself from up above because nobody <laughs> wants to see everything falling underneath your chin. And so <laughs> I'm trying to you don't you don't foam roll. <laughs> trying to do a foam roll video for my quad from way up here. Yeah, that that's gonna be tricky. But if you know how to splice. Let's I start can. here, and then I could go and take a video of me right straight on with the quad, and then go, "Hey, how do you put this all in a little?" We got. Gotcha. I could definitely help you out with group that. effort is key. I like it. Yes, and, I, could, and, I would love to help you with that. 
Okay, thank you. <laughs> yes, be my honor. So now, <laughs> namaste. <laughs> so let's do real quick. I think what we can do, since Dominic hates how rambly I can get about food, I don't we'll hate it. Each, yes, you. It's the only thing I like about you. We'll eat. Wow. <laughs> Truth comes. And, out. And he's obviously upset you didn't no. make any cake today. Obviously. Obviously. Obvi- I'm a little upset about that. A little upset. Anyway, so what I'll do is I think what we can each do. We'll say our favorite and why, and then we can talk about something that pertains to our jobs. <laughs> so, um, let's do out of sandwich, open face sandwich, tartine, because you know I think those are different, right? Oh. Or do we think they're the same? That's throwing a monkey wrench. We can say they're the same. I, want, say they're the same. I know what a tartine is. It's it's fancy toast. It's fancy toast. Okay. Gotcha. It's fancy toast. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you have to pick your favorite and you have to say why. And I think that um, it can be hot sandwich, cold sandwich, hot, open-faced, fancy toast, cold, open-faced, fancy toast. Those are the options. Can All I go right. first? Okay, uh-huh. cool. I love just baguette, ham, cheese, butter. Mm. That's my jam. Simple, straight to the point, fucking delicious. So good. <laughs> ton, 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 ton. <laughs> so, oh, fun yeah. fact, we learned the word in French. What is the word for? It's it's every word. It's your, your crap. Uncle, uh-huh. Your uncle mows your tuna. Is yes. ton, 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 <laughs> in French. That is accurate French, by the way. It's the only French sentence I know. Thank you, internet. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's go. Oh, gosh. You got, you know, like, I actually wasn't prepared. But I think if I'm going to pick a favorite thing on bread, I'm just going to pick fucking butter on a toasted piece of bread. Wow. You're actually so simple. Well, no. You love fat. Kerry yes. gold butter. Kerry gold butter. Not not just some fucking like you know what I mean. Yes. Brand. But do you do Kerry gold salted or Kerry gold unsalted? Salted. Love salted. I grew up in a household with no salted butter, and I never real. And it, my mom was always like, "Well, I'm baking and baking and I'm baking." I'm like, "Okay, but like people like flavor, mom." Um. <laughs> so now, from now until the end of time, and I bake too, mom. I don't care what those recipes say. All of the butter in our house is salted. <laughs> I just like can't handle it. <laughs> okay. Open yeah. face. All right. I don't know if this would be fancy toast. This may be mm-hmm. fancy toast. So yes, it has to be toasted. So yes, mm-hmm. it's fancy toast. Tartine. That's <laughs> avocado. Sliced avocado. Drizzle with balsamic vinaigrette. Ooh. That's it. Wow. Um, We're so simple. See, you're simple too. Because within simplicity is complexity. Because you have, I mean, the- those things have to be super good. You know, you're not like, oh, I found this avocado rolling around in the back of the cart and I'm going to put it on this white sandwich wonder bread. No, it has to be, yeah, it can't be mushy. It can't be too hard. It has to be nice and ripe. The balsamic vinegar can't be just acid. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not aged. If you have aged balsamic vinegar, that yes. is the best. Okay, glad we got that under our belts. Speaking of complex, <laughs> which is really simple as simplicity is complex. Yeah, or in complexity is simplicity. There you go. Right. You could go either way. It's like a square, and a square and a rectangle, right? The square. shoulder thing? Hmm. People make it sound so simple, but it's not. What shoulder thing? The shoulder, like a shoulder injury. Yes. Oh, so true. Oh, actually, I did want to. I did have one specific thing I wanted you two to talk about because let's be real, I'm really just here for comic relief. Um, and your good looks. And thank you. Um, I want you guys to talk about. Um, so I have a tear in my shoulder labrum, but growing up, everyone was like, "You have tendonitis. You have a tear in your rotator cuff." And I'm sitting here being like, "I know people with those actual like X-rays. 
you can you can you can prove that those are the problems and their pain is way different than anything i ever experienced but i think that a lot of swimmers whether they be experienced or not jump to the conclusion that anything wrong with your shoulder is your rotator cuff um like i don't know i've just heard that more frequently than any other shoulder issue ever when people are self-diagnosing themselves um self-diagnosing i think that's what we need to underline right there yeah <laughs> big red underline <laughs> when you yourself the not doctor tell us what's wrong with you hmm. yeah but so i think that that would be a really good thing to discuss because it's it, it, even swim coaches who don't know anything i think about um scientific body things or whatever you want to call it <laughs> like you mean anatomy, anatomy. <laughs> so like me <laughs> um very funny, by the they just like jump to the conclusion because someone else said it at some point in time and that's the only thing they have in their brain arsenal but also yeah. like me so I, I think it's just like discussing what the possibilities so, are because those are what's more frequent i actually don't know anyone who has a torn rotator cuff everyone who well, said that, that to me mean? Well, that's just what they said. Like, I, right. I, I just think that, yes, exactly. I want to expand. So I think the difficulty is that a lot of the times doctors have to speak in a simple way to their patients. Mm -hmm. And so everything gets simplified like, oh, your rotator cuff, as if it's like this thing. And, right. Uh, because they don't want to get too technical with their patients because then they get confused. And if they have their patients get confused, then they have issues, right? So they say simplistic things like rotator cuff. Or uh, I was just listening on the radio this morning, a dentist talking about the differences between a sprained tooth versus a bruised tooth. And she was saying that they use the term bruised tooth to their patients, even though it's a sprained tooth most of the time. Was this dentist our dog? Those things exist? Yes, they do exist, apparently. Apparently, you can bruise a tooth, and apparently, you can sprain a tooth. It is ligaments that hold your teeth in place, and so you can sprain your teeth because ligaments get sprained. You can bruise a tooth because there's blood vessels in your teeth, but they're two different things. But in a way to simplify talking to a patient, they will say bruised over sprain because sprain can be... I don't want to say complicated, but it's something different. And it, the word sprain is less understood than the word bruised. So I agree with you. I think in general, people hear simplistic, more simplistic versions of what's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because going into the details sometimes can get confusing. And then that person can walk away with maybe more misinformation than there, or they get too anxious and i think mm -hmm. there's a there's a um lean towards calming anxiety in that type of situation right like oh you actually have a labral tear that's completely gone and now we've got to go in and scrape it out and reattach some bovine <laughs> cartilage you know so i think so great anatomy <laughs> so i think i think there is a for um, for most for the most part, people come in hearing the simplistic version. Also, because of Google, I think most of my clients come in Googling something mm -hmm. and then saying, and then they either say, well, this is what Google said, but then they go to the extra 16 links and now they think they might even have bone cancer. So uh, talking them off the ledge of, well, either do you have, even something basic like, what is, did you get an x-ray? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I got an x-ray and it should have had a tear. And I'm like, mm, let's stop right there, actually, because x-rays don't show tears. <laughs> right. Ooh, I don't know if many people know that. Yeah. X-rays show bones that will mm -hmm. show if you have a something happened in your bone, but it's not going to show a tear. So then my next question is, do you have an MRI schedule? Well, the doctor don't, doesn't think it's worth an MRI. Right. So then there's the conversation of well, what does an MRI show over x-ray? Well, MRI will show the muscle, the ligament, the tent, whatever they're trying to get a picture of. That's where we see if that's what, what's happening with it. And if it's too small, an MRI sometimes won't catch it. So right. yeah, you could have a tear, but it's small enough that the MRI is not going to actually capture that. But you're still feeling not good in that mm -hmm. joint or whatever. 
Yeah. So it is kind of a, I, I would say a large, a, a large piece of my FaceTime with clients who have injuries is the education around like, what are you feeling? What is the medical community telling you? How do you, how are you responding to that? And then what do you, you know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And then I have to go through my list, you know, is it frozen shoulder that gets misdiagnosed a lot. And What's frozen, frozen shoulder? shoulder? Frozen shoulders when slowly over time, it can take like sometimes months, you slowly stop getting the motion, the range of motion in your shoulder joint. What? Suddenly, like one day you can do this and then people are like, and then a couple weeks later I can do this. And I'm always like, how did you not know that your range of motion from your shoulder was going from, I can raise my arm to full range to half range. <laughs> this is also an audio component. I love your actions. <laughs> Full range of motion to less than. I would to say, almost I no would range say we went from 100 to like 30% with that. Yeah. Um, and frozen shoulder. Actually, I was looking up like tenants of frozen shoulder. And one website said that basically anybody over 40 probably going to get frozen shoulder or a degree of frozen shoulder to a certain extent. And I'm like, what? Oh. Yeah, it's really <laughs> I'm not turning 40. I'm just done. It's really common. We'll see. I'll see you guys later. I got, I got some years left. <laughs> but that being said, I do think um, if I think about clients, what is clients range of motion? I mean, working with swimmers, I, you guys actually see a pretty good range of motion in shoulders for the most part. Mm-hmm. Sometimes too much range of motion. A lot of the time, too much range of motion. But if you're old, if you're thinking about, um, sitting at a desk for 10 to 15 years of your life, you're not, even working out is not a balance on the scale that it's going to equalize what you do eight or nine hours a day. You know, I, sometimes clients are like, I did yoga once this week. I'm like, oh, how many hours did you sit in your desk? Uh, (laughs) Yay for that one hour of yoga. (laughs) I did yoga once this week. Maybe 45 minutes with me. Okay. (laughs) um but frozen shoulder i think is a piece of it too so Mm -hmm. you've got you have a rotator cuff got frozen frozen shoulder diagnosis kind of this all-encompassing so what you said lissa rotator cuff kind of all-encompassing frozen shoulder you have tendinosis tendinitis Mm -hmm. one is inflammation one is um pathology right so it's getting the tendon is getting friction in the sheath um which is which by the way so it's been interesting people used to say tendinosis a lot Uh uh-huh um because anytime you would think there was something going wrong um in the body would be an inflammatory response right easy assumption easy assumption um and so i think overall people just throw that out as well if you're having a problem there must be some inflammation involved yeah, there, there could be, that could be true, but if you don't move it, but then that scares clients to not wanting to move, right? Like, well, I don't, mm-hmm. it either hurts or I don't want to cause more inflammation. So I'm just going to, you know, keep protected. And that is a protection mechanism, but to what point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you, and actually this also go, I was thinking about this too. This goes into, um, hypermobility. Yes. And you've got the other end of the spectrum where you have hypermobile clients who have too much range of motion, which is most of swimmers, right? Right. Most of swimmers, dancers, gymnasts. Um, and, and then what do you do? Yeah. Learn how to control yourself. Yeah, and like not use your joints to move. Yeah, that's my thing. Use your muscles. My joints are move. so loose. Like uh, people have told me that people, random people. No, people. Um, people. at the grocery store. Um, I know that uh, when I was younger, my parents did actually, which I was shocked by, let me go see um, a physical therapist a few times. Um, they're very like old hat, so it was. I was shocked they let me go. Um, but I was like 14. <laughs> um, 
she like if she was just like do you realize how loose all of your joints are and i was just like uh no why would i i'm a child um <laughs> how would i know that so I, I think that like but then then after knowing it and talking to people about it, it it like so many swimmers like they have really really loose joints and like that they don't understand that that's sort of how they're throwing their bodies around in the water um because i didn't know but that's why I have a tear in my right shoulder labrum. So, or, or, or so I've been told. I don't really know. Yeah. And, and just going back to the labrum thing, by the way, just I think it's always important for people to realize as adults, there's wear and tear on your bodies, whether you're athletic or not. Yes. And it's very mm-hmm. easy for a doctor to do an MRI, see a tear in the labrum and go, oh, look, you have a labral tear. Yeah, well, that's really common. There's wear and tear. Everyone has labral tears. Is it the cause of the issue is the question. And I think for maybe some orthopedists that want a new boat, (laughs) it's an easy way to sell surgery. You have a labral tear. There's no way to fix it. We got to scope it out or we got to do surgery. Well, yeah, 99% of the population has those tears instead of trying to correct how to move. That's not to say that labral tears aren't serious and need to be taken care of. It just depends on into which degree. That's all. Right. So. Right. And I also think um, there are actually a lot of things you can do myofascially with frozen shoulder or with a shoulder that starts to get locked down. Yeah. Um, subscap releases are amazing for that. And that is a what? Subscap releases. It is a under the armpit release. So it's really really, for somebody who has a lockdown shoulder, they're not actually able to move their elbow out very far from their body, Okay. uh, let alone trying to move their hand overhead. Um, One of the the questions we ask when we're trying to figure out what's going on with the shoulder is, um, can you put your can you put your seatbelt on in the car? No, I can't. I can't reach behind me and pull the seatbelt down. Um, Can you hold, can you brush your hair? Can you hold a hairdryer over your head? No, I can't. I'm like doing, you know, I'm barely able to do that. Um, So overhead range of motion, extension of the arm is really locked down. Mm -hmm. So you can't just pull the arm out and start to work the shoulder. So there's the pec muscles, there's the subscap, there's the supraspinatus. So the first thing I normally go to, and I won't even go into, you also have to work the rib cage and the intercostal on that side as well. Um, And because if a shoulder gets locked down for too long, the thoracic, your thoracic rotation also decreases and then you can't rotate and then you can't bend and then, you know. You can't breathe. And then you can't breathe. (laughs) And then it's just game over. Yeah. So the first thing I do is usually a subscap release because really all I can, I can get into a very small part of the armpit if I am just able to get the elbow out from the body an inch or maybe an inch and a half. And if I can do that, I can start to wedge my way into the subscap. And once I can open up the subscap, then I can open up more range of motion, not only from the elbow outside of the torso, but then also a little bit of arm motion kind of going overhead. And then you can go into pec release, which is a trigger point. So the armpit release of the subscap is kind of down. So if you're lying down, the subscap, it would be, um, I would press down towards the floor. But Mm -hmm. a pec release is more trigger pointing at the top of the shoulder towards the clavicle, right? So I would do a pec release after that. And then you can do this face up. You can work the client face down. In fact, if it's really, really locked down, face down work is easier because I can, with the gravity and the shoulder kind of falling forward, I can get my fingers into the um, inside of the shoulder a little bit better. So the first thing to do is to look at the rotator cuff muscles, mm-hmm. find out what movement in lockdown, what's, what muscles are causing the movement to be restricted. 
and then to see if fascial release will help that. Now, if fascia is locked down, the nerves inside are also locked down. So you could even have some people say maybe they're not, it feels a little numb or they don't feel it as much. Um, sometimes it obviously goes up into the neck. So you've got scalenes involved, you have sternocleidal mastoid involved, you have neck rotation issues. And so shoulders actually, you know, low back is big. People talk about the hip flexors, but shoulders can actually, if a shoulder starts to lock down, lots of other, it's like a spider web, like kind of goes yep. out and lots of things can be, can, can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that's very accurate. Wait, before you ask this question, can you just uh, real quickly explain what like the word release means, like in this sense, like just brief, like, I mean, like it's, I'm assuming that you're, you're obviously relieving the pressure on the muscles and the strain, but like a, a better definition of that, or is that exactly what it is? <laughs> um, so actually it's kind of a good question. The way I do it is that this is usually pretty painful, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not right. a, but the relief also can be pretty immediate. So you, it is kind of the two sides of the coin. I, and I tell patients that, you know, this is not going to be fun and we're going to try to work with breath. So I'll try to do the, the, the really intense pieces with the breath. Um, but we should be able, when it's done to get some movement and some relief. And so I use a combination of, um, let me say, so warming up the tissue. So maybe some effleurage definitely trigger point, but trigger point with an active component, if they can do it, if they're that locked down that they can't even find an action um, for that muscle group that I'm working, mm -hmm. then I do the movement for them. So it's passive. So in terms of a subscap, if I'm pinning their subscap down to the table and I'm trying to move their arm out a little bit, I'm just moving their arm a little bit back and forth or a little bit in and out to show the body that I can pin this muscle so pin and pin and move okay. <laughs> I don't want to say it's not an active release and then I release and then you know give the client give the body a chance to say okay I'm taking this information and see if I can get in a little bit more so I usually do these passes at least twice to see this is where we are this is the release did we get in a result and can we get a little bit more I get a little bit greedy and I kind of go in again Sometimes clients are like, I'm done. You can't do that to me ever. <laughs> but then they come back and they're like, that actually worked. And now I can put my seatbelt on. So can you do some more? I'm like, oh, yep. good. I'm glad about that feedback. <laughs> so do you find or have you tried to um, give some manual mobility to the first rib to help with shoulder range of motion? Because I know... I, for some of my clients, I teach them how to do self mobs for the first rib, which is incredibly painful, FYI. Um, but can. yeah, if it's Absolutely. jammed up, it's not fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. Do it if you don't feel good. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, do, you, do you try to work the first rib? Is that something you look at or, or no? I do. It's not the First thing I go to, unless I see um, the rib cage really out of alignment, um, it is something I do add in maybe step two or step three. And usually when I do that, it's related to pec motion and then neck motion. So it's a kind of a pin and stretch motion with the first rib while I'm trying to lengthen the scalenes or lengthen the SCM. Um, and that can be active and passive. Usually if you have a shoulder issue, I can still, well, I shouldn't say that if it's really bad, the next lockdown too, but, <clears throat> and vice versa. If someone has a lot of neck issues, something in their ribs and their shoulders also going on. <laughs> uh -oh. yeah, we're, it's funny how everything is connected, isn't it? Weird. It's like you're a puzzle. <laughs> it's like a puzzle. Right. Or like, puzzle. Or like pizza. Um, I was <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I was literally just thinking that. And I was like, no, I can't say that. Oh. Pizza with pineapple. Nobody in my house likes pizza with pineapple and ham, but I do. So 
Oh, we're soul sisters. Hold, there, there is an oh. equation here when it comes to pizza and pineapple. Okay. I believe you need a pizza. One. Some sort of salty component like bacon, bacon or ham. Two. And then you need a spicy component. Heat. Three. With those what? three. What do you do for jalapenos? Jalapenos. <laughs> uh, Bacon, jalapeno, pineapple, thin crust, pizza. Uh, or not so thin crust, the gigantic one that Whole Foods makes, but that'll feed you for three days. And if you consume it in like 30 minutes, like we do, you'll well, regret it. <laughs> you'll regret I mean, you will, but you won't. It's weird. Anyway. <laughs> It's, I like sriracha sauce. Maybe I'll just put some sriracha sauce. There you go. Ooh, yeah. Or drizzle it on. Drizzle yeah. it. Ooh, uh, or hot honey. Hot honey is delicious. Hot honey is delicious. Um, <laughs> so it's, and then I don't want to, with the, with the lockdown shoulder, I also don't want to forget, once you get the shoulder to a certain degree of release, you do need to re-educate the body on how to move it because and that's a partially because the client is so scared about moving it because of pain that if you have a release the client will lose that let's say we get a, a five percent increase in range of motion if i don't teach the client how to move the arm with that increased range of motion they will be afraid to do it and then when i see them again i have to do it all over again so if I, there's that re-education piece where now you need to work on increasing range of motion or increasing, depending on how severe the lockdown is, you know, do we need to add a little bit of a strength component or should we wait another session and just make sure we can get a stretch myofascial um, increase in range of motion. So there's a lot of factors to, to come into that. The other thing I do want to say in my experience is a lot of times when people come in with shoulder issues and they've been told it's rotator cuff or um, it's a labral tear or it's frozen shoulder and we're going to wait five, five weeks because I'm going to go PT. And I know there's a, there's a, there's a protocol for that. You need to do PT with shoulder issues, but even if there's a tear in the MRI and that's not, you know, worthy necessarily of operating right away because there is that strength component. A lot of people lose strength in that joint, but I will say nine times, eight times out of 10, <laughs> that person ends up in surgery. <laughs> so it always is interesting to me. I'm like, okay, I understand you have to do physical therapy. I do think doing myofascial work with the physical therapy is a good idea. So if your PT doesn't do a lot of hands-on work, I would still come and do myofascial work. Um, but what I have found is the bicep tendon is a tricky little guy. Oh, interesting. Okay. I did this with you, Lissa. Didn't I do some bicep tendon work on you? And I think it was that shoulder, your right shoulder. Um, that was the first time I allowed you to touch me. And the last. Um, sure. No. No, I say that because I always feel bad asking Kim to do stuff for me because we're friends. Um, yes, you did. Oh my gosh, I'd forgotten all about that. So bicep tendon, there's a little groove on the, house, on the head of your shoulder joint where the bicep tendon is yeah. supposed to. It's this, it's pencil thin, this little bicep tendon, and it's supposed to fit into this bicep tendon groove. And then that also attaches. And the bicep tendon, when it comes out of the groove, is actually a pretty big muscle. It does a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So I have found that if someone says frozen shoulder or I have a tear, there is a huge piece that the bicep tendon plays. And if I can figure out if the tendon is out of that groove, we can try to put it back in. And that... Ow! A hundred percent of the time, that gives sixty percent relief to the problem. If, Seriously, if the bicep tendon is out of its groove, that is a problem. Wow! So, so other muscles will start to take up the slack, lock down, protect the joint. But if we can get the tendon back in the groove, mm -hmm. and then do the reeducation piece to help it stay there, because usually, then to done, bicep tendons come out because of an injury, trauma, mm -hmm. or you're loose ligamented. So some people have it come out of the groove all the time. So you yep. really should be strengthening that piece. 
Ow. Basically, all those other pieces of the shoulder joints, the bicep tendon won't come out. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a doctor, this is a long time ago. So I don't know, seven or eight years ago, he was a doctor and he was going to go have the surgery. He decided, and I don't even remember if the MRI showed a tear. I think it did. I can't remember. But I said, hey, I think your biceps tendons out of the groove. Can I put it back in and see what happens? He's like, oh, okay. So I did. Four days later, he came back to me and said, I can, I have full range of motion. What? I'm going to go have surgery. Yeah, I think. Did he give you his firstborn child? <laughs> oh, I should have asked for that. I want to be Rumpelstiltskin now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think that surgery is a quick fix for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, people aren't always thinking uh, long term. They're thinking, I'm in pain. I'm frustrated. I can't get better. I'm constantly hurting. Just just do surgery versus exploring all the avenues before surgery well, or giving time to build strength. I think so, it's also that that used to be be the only answer like that was it was like if you take I don't know baby boomers and people my parents age sorry guys um that's what you did I I mean I don't know like that that just seems to be like that's what used to be the next step and so in honesty I think that was the next step so that gets me into what happens a lot now that I see I'm gonna try PRP Right. Uh, and we can we explain that for those who do, don't know? Or, or what do you think about PRP? Uh, Platelet-rich plasma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plasma. <laughs> fancy, fancy talk over here so, now. So fancy. I like plasma uh, my fancy toast, by the way. I bet you do. <laughs> I think to kind of tie your point together, um, I do tell patients who really think, I'm just going to have the surgery. Um, I always do remind them, okay, remember even surgery, post-surgery, you have rehab time. So it's not going to be surgery 100%. I'm back to the way I was. On average, you'll never get your full range of motion back Mm -hmm. and you'll have to work for it. So it's not, so people who want a quick fix now, they do, I think they do need to be reminded that either choice, and if it's a necessity, that's a different, different story. Um, Either way, they're going to have to put some work in. PRP, I have had so many questions about PRP and also pot-related massage therapy cream, which could be a whole nother podcast. Oh, interesting. PRP works maybe 50% of the time. Is it really that little? Totally. I don't, I've had some clients who thought it was the best thing that they didn't know why they waited so long. They, one woman ran Boston after some PRP uh, injections and she was how she had had a surgery on her Achilles tendon. Like it, she was a mess. And suddenly uh-huh. the PRP, um, I think two rounds and she PR'd in Boston. Wow. That's a success story. Like the two days. Right. Um, and then I have had a client for shoulder. He, didn't really feel like it did anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a series. You have to do at least three, I think. Yeah, I yeah. just we just had a client talk to me about um, her ankle, actually, and how same thing. It she did the series and she feels exactly the same. Um, but also, just to clarify, we did say anecdotally, we're not saying that this is accurate in any way, shape, or form. Just our experiences with people who've gotten PRP. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she, uh, your client, I know she, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, and that, that honestly was the first person I've heard that it didn't work for. But that being said, we used to work in a facility that had regenerative sports doctors in it. And who knows if the things they told me were accurate or not, but I would say, I would say one of the (laughs) things I learned from PRP is that, even though something is inflamed, that doesn't mean you're supposed to baby it. Going back to our previous conversation, because that's part of the protocol for PRP, is you will be inflamed. You can't try to immobilize whatever we injected. You still have to move. Because if you immobilize it, 
then all of it's for nothing. Right. So I think that's also kind of a user error that might contribute to the lack of success with PRP is user error. So, I mean, yeah. Who's oh, to say? absolutely. I do. Yes. And it's not a one size fits all. Um, the clients that I know I've had, it as the years have gone on, more clients have done it. And um, so I have more stories over the last probably three years than I did prior. And it, there is obviously there's, there's an onus on the patient to do what they need to do to either heal or let it rest or whatever. But um, I think there are so many, and maybe it's age. If mm -hmm. I think about the age of each of these clients, maybe there's an age component to it as well. And <clears throat> fitness level pre and post. I mean, there could be a lot of variables. So, right. well, I happen to know at least one regenerative medicine doctor <laughs> that maybe he would be good to invite on the podcast. That's so I can reach out to him. Yeah, uh, we yeah. should want percent have you kim and said regenerative medicine doctor on the podcast at the same time and i will sit back with a bowl of popcorn and just watch yeah maybe we can work out a, a zoom podcast or something <laughs> a zoom podcast so many questions yeah. so good so many questions and then also now we'll save that for another time so <laughs> what a tease uh -oh. i'm not gonna derail i know we're running out of time so um yeah derail this so um yeah, so shoulders, shoulders, thoracic spine, breath, rotation, mobility, loose ligaments. It's all one big ball of crap. Complex. Um, <laughs> complexity. Complexity. Yep. Yes. If you guys want to be like nice about it and use good I words. Mean, yeah. <laughs> or, or as my, I was upstairs today doing laundry and my five-year-old's on FaceTime with my mother, her grandmother. And who's teaching her Swedish? Because my mom, my mom's side of the family is all Swedish, and um, from Sweden. And so I hear my five-year-old going "shitbola, shitbola," and I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And I run downstairs, and I'm like, "What are you guys doing?" And she's like, "I'm learning how to say meatballs." <laughs> <laughs> so best best thing one, you've ever said. <laughs> one big ball of shitbola. <laughs> <laughs> oh nice. my god i think that is the perfect ending note now we all know how to say meatballs by the way yep. in swedish so this is a very educational podcast next time i can go to ikea i'll be able to order them properly <laughs> i learned about sandwiches i learned about french i learned about swedish swedish meatballs shit bula shit you have to say shit bula i think that's how it goes like it's shit very bula. Bula. Shit bula it's a very lilting language right mm -hmm. so, um Pretty soon, she. In fact, she came up to the day and she was like, "Yeah, gals, good day, mama." And I'm like, "I, French, yes, Swedish, mm, a little iffy." <laughs> hey, excuse me, what? <laughs> Just be concerned if she says ton 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 ton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that. And you know, I taught her French. <laughs> uh oh. You've been talking to somebody on the iPad, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! All right. All right. You ready to end this? I so think, I think so. Let's say by next week we will have some content about foam rolling for people. We'll have the links. And, like Arby's. Uh, you know, you know they've it, got the meats. Nobody. The meats. Nobody. Sure. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to email us about how they feel about sandwiches or toast in particular, whatever they learned about this podcast. I'm I'm very curious to hear what people say about sandwiches. Jokes on everyone. Uh, I don't actually care about swimming. I'm just trying to turn this into a food podcast. <laughs> Joke. Psych. Psych. Gotcha. Turn to you. Uh, how can people find you, Kim? Functionalfitbody.com or my Instagram is at kimfkey. Perfect. Nice and sweet. Cool. Simple and sweet. All right. We'll All right. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Bye. Bye. Peace.